As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, do you know what a super lizard is? <laughs> a what? A super lizard. No, I have no idea. Literally none. Do you know what a flash lizard is? Nope. A double chance? Were these, were these uh, animals that you encountered on uh, your vacation? Like, were these, like, New Year? Did you vacation somewhere exotic and see these uh, lizards? I did. Well, I, I was in Marrakesh, and I did see some chameleons. Um, but, no, this actually has nothing to do with the animals. Oh. Uh, it, it has to do with one of my personal favorite financial topics. Uh, okay, so what is a super lizard? Super lizard. Uh, okay. So uh, super lizard or flash lizard or a double chance or any number of these uh, interesting and exotic type names is actually a type of structured product known as an autocallable or an equity linked security. And these are a type of product where investors basically buy an interest bearing note that's linked to a particular index like the Hang Seng or or the Nikkei or something like that. Uh, sometimes they're also linked to currencies uh, and they basically do it in order to make a profit. So they're sort of exotic structured products for retail investors and they come with these great names like Super or Flash Lizard. I am kind of aware of these things called structured products. I kind of get how they work. But I have to say, I'm very excited that I'm. this is not an episode that I'm doing solo because I have a feeling this is going to be one of those ones where I sort of sit back and get in a question here or there, but mostly I just listen because this is um, tough stuff, I think, right? It's complicated. I think you're I mean, literally just the way you're <laughs> describing it. I get it I, only because I've been doing some reading on these. I get what these notes are, but... This is uh, above my head. I think you're underselling yourself, Joe. But I mean, the reason these structured products are pretty interesting is because you see them pop up every once in a while and usually not in a good way. So, for instance, I think the most recent example was in 2018. Uh, you had a French bank, Natixis, that had a massive uh, blow up because it was selling these structured products right. and had failed to hedge them properly or had gotten the hedge wrong. And then before that, I don't know if you remember, this was when uh, I was in New York and actually sitting next to you, but in 2015, we had a big structured product blow up on um, a type of product known as a TARF, uh, Target Redemption Forward, I think that's called, uh, that was linked to the Chinese UN. And you remember China uh, unexpectedly devalued the UN and it caused all sorts of turmoil in these structured products. I don't know if you remember, but I think I actually wrote a post at Bloomberg at the time that was called the TARF barf. I'm not sure how I got away with that. That's a but. good one. But basically... The idea behind these structured notes, and they're sold mostly to retail or uh, high net worth investors, is this idea that there's some underlying index, like you said, maybe the Hang Seng or maybe something in Europe or whatever, and someone will pay money, they'll buy one of these notes and get some sort of guaranteed return, except if something happens, like maybe it goes down too much or whatever. And on the flip side, the bank has to buy or sell a bunch of derivatives to actually be able to deliver this guaranteed return. Is that kind of how it works? 
Yeah, and see, I knew you were underselling yourself before. I knew you've been studying. No, but it's only on because I've been cram. It's only because I've been cramming. <laughs> okay, but the thing I was getting at is the reason they're interesting is because they pop up every once in a while, and as you mentioned, they're sort of linked to the wider financial system because when stuff starts to go wrong with them, you do get a wave of uh, what's known as delta hedging at the banks, at the issuing banks, and that can impact the market itself, and you can sort of get. Um, a bad spiral. But we're going to get into all of those details. Uh, we have the perfect person to discuss it. I want to bring in Ben Eifert. He runs a QVR Advisors, which manages volatility and derivatives for big investors. He's also very good uh, on Twitter, so you should check him out there. Ben, it's so good to have you. Tracy, it's great to be here. Hey, Joe, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on. Not bad at all. Absolutely. So uh, Joe and I were trying to sort of lay the scene uh, just then, but I think maybe it would be best to start with a, a sort of potted history of how the structured products came into being, because the way in which uh, they initially got sold and the places where they got sold, uh, which is mostly in Asia, kind of gives you an idea of the, uh, the underlying dynamics. So give us a, a short summary of how these things came into being. Yeah, absolutely. So this is an industry that, you know, here in the U.S. and in New York and even in London to some extent, you know, you don't think about as much unless you're really directly involved because your average American investor, you know, owns some stocks and owns some bonds, maybe owns some ETFs or owns some mutual funds, um, but doesn't really see much of this type of thing. Um, but when you look at, at more frontier markets, particularly in Asia and, and earlier in, in Europe to a large extent, you know, there are markets where your average retail investor or, or high net worth, you know, private bank client uh, historically has been very involved in, in retail structured products sold out of banks. So, you know, you go, go down to your local BNP Paribas, you know, wealth manager, and, uh, and he would be helping, helping or suggesting these types of products to, to retail. So a, a lot of the history, you know, there's, there's, I think, myriad reasons for the different development of, of these products in, in different markets. But uh, in some of the Asian countries is a great example where, you know, you don't necessarily have a long history of traditional right. equity and bond markets. So like in Korea, for example, right? But you had a very rapid process of wealth creation in the 70s and 80s as as these countries industrialized and as, you know, many, you know, a, a, a middle class rapidly developed and a, a class of of wealthy, wealthy folks. And they were looking for places to put their money. And these type of products presented a very attractive opportunity set both for banks to sell and in some ways for, for those investors to, to get involved in because, you know, we'll get into some of the details, but, you know, there's many good optics around the investment characteristics of the, right. of the product and also, uh, you know, typically, typically they can be, you know, currency hedge type of exposures, which matters a lot, right? As like a local Korean investor, you're not trying to get involved in U.S. markets someplace and take a bunch of currency risks. So you tended to see, you know, Japan very early developed a big structured products market, was one of the first in Asia, and then eventually Korea, China also. Uh, and you also see a reasonable amount of structured products historically coming out of, uh, of Europe as well, Swiss private banks, uh, for, for example. So let's just break this down like super vanilla to start, and then we'll get into sort of the complicated aspects of why these products are interesting and the ramifications. But just in terms f for so that people understand what the buyer of these products are getting. So take us through like a very like prototypical, I don't know, 50-year-old person comes in and they have some money and they want to make an investment, but they're a little worried about risk and volatility. Maybe they're going to retire. What is the basic offering that maybe someone at the bank is telling this person why it may might make sense for them to buy some structured product and what are they sort of being told about the upside and the potential risks? Absolutely. So first I'll give you an example of really where the industry got started uh, and then maybe a, an example from more recent times of where the industry is, has evolved to. Okay. So a lot of the, the growth of structured product markets, say in the 80s and 90s, what you would typically see was just variations on uh, the good old-fashioned um, principal protected note. So this would just be exactly the you know the person you said walks into their local you know wealth manager and they get shown um, a note that gives them effectively the upside price return of the index. Let's call it the euro stock. Say it's a you know a, a Swiss private bank. Um, so you know they're going to put a hundred dollars down if the euro stock is goes up you know. 
10% by the maturity of the note, um, they're going to get, they're going to make 10%. But importantly, they are going to get their principal back no matter what, unless, of course, the bank defaults, which is a, a whole different story. There's some counterparty risk here. But right. So effectively, it, to the end investor, they say, hey, this is great, right? This is kind of like getting involved in the equity market, but I'm a little worried that it might go down. Right. Uh, and from an investor's perspective, it's basically like buying a zero coupon bond and a call option. Right. And this, this worked, right? This was attractive to the investor. Um, because you got some downside protection, because typically you you got you know reasonable upside. Often um, investors often don't think about the fact that they're getting the price appreciation of the stocks when actually dividends are really important. Right, mm. they're not getting dividends. So that's already one way that uh, they're paying for it, even if they're not really thinking about it. Exactly. Okay. And so often you'll have those type of aspects where there's some slightly subtle trade-offs in the economics of the note that your typical retail investor might not always think about. But hey, they're getting some upside in the equity market. They have limited downside. Uh, you know, they like uh, you know they like this type of thing. And in the old days, when interest rates were six percent or eight uh, percent, this worked, right? Because you could buy a, a, that zero coupon bond effectively. Um, or the bank that's structuring this product could fund it by buying a zero coupon bond that was going to generate that capital, that sort of principal protection, and then use and then use some money to buy a call option. Hmm. So that's a pretty simple structure, pretty easy to understand for the most part. Where now the the interesting, you know, a big part of the evolution of this market over the last ten years has been. So what do you do with this industry when you know there's no more six or eight percent interest rates to fund this type of of principal protection that was so attractive to a certain set of investors, right? These days you think more of the the problem or one problem facing investors of all types, right? Is how on earth do you generate a decent yield right. on, a, on a on a fixed income style investment, right? You've got you know if you want to get a seven percent yield and look in the credit markets at the quality of credit, you know that you have to credit risk that you have to take in order to generate a seven percent yield, it's pretty scary. Um, and so in this world of very low interest rates effectively what structured products businesses at banks that manufacture these products and think creatively about you know how, what they can offer they found various ways to effectively sell options to generate yield right in a world with low interest rates the, the way that you generate yield for the most part is you sell, you either take credit risk or you sell options and so a more typical type of of product these days that has grown very rapidly over the last 10 years Tracy alluded to it is what you might call uh, the reverse convertible auto call, and and what that of those products effectively are a zillion different variations on a very simple idea, which is you know the investor is going to put down their hundred dollars, uh, they're going to get a coupon, an annual coupon, just like a bond, so call it six percent or eight percent, but in exchange. The, they're going to take the risk that if something bad happens, they're going to lose a bunch of money. Typically, it would be if the underlying index or the worst return within a set of underlying indices uh, was down, say, 30% or 35% at any point in the next few years, they're just going to lose that, get knocked out of that note and lose their 35%. So effectively, they're they're selling that option to the, to the, to the bank in exchange for getting that coupon. Right. And then they'll come with all kinds of other bells and whistles on them. But that's the very basic idea is you get a coupon, a fixed income stream. In exchange, you take that risk of the, of the bad scenario. So, Ben, you mentioned uh, the issuers uh, behind these products, which are, are usually banks, uh, often French ones, oddly enough. Um, walk us through exactly how the banks sell these products and where their profits come from when they're selling this sort of uh, panoply of, of offerings, you know, autocallables, equity-linked securities, TARFs, uh, whatever you want to call them. Absolutely. So there will typically be, you know, se- several layers of uh, of the of the value chain and distribution, right? So the the client, the end retail investor, will be sitting down with a broker uh, or with a financial advisor of some kind, right? And typically, um, when the client buys that note, typically there's first uh, some kind of commission uh, directly to the financial advisor, right? Um, then often there will also be um, just an upfront load the same way you used to see upfront loads on mutual funds. So there might also be an upfront effectively commission uh, that goes back to the bank. Then uh, within the bank, there's probably a structuring, you know, a structuring desk uh, that was involved in the creation of the security that might get that might get a cut. There's the the trading desk itself, which has 
uh, is going to make a price for that note. So typically, you know, the note will be structured and it will be offered and the trading desk will, will make a price and typically that price will contain effectively some bid-ask spread. The same way that any trade that one was to quote a bank on uh, would contain some bid-ask spread. Right. You know, in most of these different pieces, you know, usually the upfront charge on the security is transparent to the end investor. You know, the commission to the to the broker typically would not be. Certainly the bid-ask spread to the traders, sort of where is the fair value of this note, would, would not be transparent to, to the investor. So, you know, usually there's uh, quite a lot of embedded cost in these, you know, and only only part of it would typically be, be transparent to the end client. Uh, so one of the benefits to the banks uh, who are issuing the products is that they get all, all these fees and commissions, as you describe, and they also sort of get a, a cheap form of funding uh, via the retail investment. But it it doesn't come for free for the banks in the sense that they actually have to offset the exposure that they're taking on by selling the products. And, and this is where I promise uh, auto callables and equity linked securities start to get really interesting. It's actually through the relationship with the issuing bank. So how exactly do the issuers go about hedging their exposure? Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Tracy. So banks are not in the business of, you know, taking market risk uh, on the other side of these type of transactions, right? The bank ideally wants to generate this set of fees for the service that it's, you know, providing to the to the end investor, and then to isolate that and to hedge out the market risk, right? So the bank, ha- you know, is issuing a liability effectively, right, where it's promising to pay the end investor according to the terms of the note. In the case of, you know, the old-fashioned, very simple thing that I described, that principal-protected note, if it's a very vanilla one, let's say, you know, a euro stocks effectively call option plus embedded uh, embedded bond, that's quite simple to hedge, right? The bank might issue this principal-protected note. It might buy some buy some zero-coupon bonds, and it might buy some call options on the euro stocks, and that might actually be, you know, quite a, quite a good hedge, right? In the case of reverse auto call type of securities where the client is actually selling options to the bank, in this case, typically the bank is is having to go out and sell downside puts, typically longer term, uh, in order to, to be a first order of magnitude hedge for these type of securities. The trick really comes in in how complex these notes get quite quickly, right? So, you know, the, the simple example is, is again, just take the euro stocks again. Maybe the client puts down $100 and is going to get an 8% coupon unless the euro stocks is down 30% at some point uh, upon which they get knocked in. One subtlety there, the description of that short optionality, that's not just being short a put option, right? It's being short something trickier because the client doesn't actually lose money unless and until the euro stocks is down 30% and then they lose 30%, right? So that's actually something that's called a knock-in put option. And right away, that's like a tricky thing that doesn't have any easy replicating portfolio and options. And then as implied volatilities fell and yields fell, banks had to add more and more features to these notes to make them still generate that 6 or 7 or 8% yield that the clients wanted, right? So typically these days, you'll see that type of product. It won't just be linked to the Euro stocks. It'll be linked to the Euro stocks and the HSCEI and the Nikkei, for example. And it will act as if whatever the worst performing index of that whole basket is, right? So that introduces a bunch of very hard to manage risk from the perspective of a bank. So, you know, typically if you talk to to anybody who runs one of these these portfolios managing these risks, you know, they'll they have very complex models, and at the end of the day, they'll describe their risk as sort of a reasonable guess. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So before we go on, there's a couple key points of clarification that I just want to wrap my head around. 
in terms of how these things work. So the first question that I have, can you explain for people and maybe including me who don't totally understand it when you say they have to sell options to generate yield, just this basic concept, is the idea essentially that, that you're selling downside protection, you're selling puts to people who are sort of natural hedgers or people who want to buy downside protection, they pay for that downside protection and that becomes the de facto yield or that becomes a de facto yield for the client. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So when you sell an option, you receive a premium for doing so, right? right. So if you go out into the market and you sell a three-year, you know, 30% out of the money put on the euro stocks, you're going to get paid um, some amount of euros for that. Right. And if the mar- and that you know that it'll have a price that'll fluctuate, but if you go throughout the life of that three-year option and right. it expires worthless, you will have collected that premium over that period of time, and you can think of that as a, as a yield. And then you mentioned there's like this weird situation where okay, let's say the owner of the note is knocked in if the um, if the underlying index against which the note is written, say if, if it falls thirty percent, then that person loses thirty percent. But if it only falls 25% or if it only falls 28%, then the bank is compelled to make the note holder whole. So what you're describing in terms of the complexity and the difficulty of like finding this perfect hedge is as a result of this fact that the risk builds for the bank as the market falls and falls until a certain point and then the risk kind of disappears and reverses, which makes, I guess this particularly tricky in finding the right valuation and price for these things. That's right. It, this is a, it's a type of, you know, barrier option. It's a very complex security, right? Which is quite hard to hedge exactly as you point out as the market as the underlying index approaches that barrier point for one particular note, right. you have sort of a binary, a binary result, right? Either if it, if the market goes down a bunch more, you're going to trigger and the, the underlying note is going to, cost the underlying investor a bunch of money. But if it doesn't, if it just stays there, uh, then it's actually, then that, that risk fades away. And in a, in a complex portfolio of many and many, many of these kinds of notes with all different linkages to different indices, you know, the hedge is quite difficult. So the so typically bet banks will, will do an initial proxy hedge, which for most right. of these types of, of instruments, when they issue new structured product risk, they'll be out in the market selling you know, longer term, call it two or three year, 20 or 30% out of the money put options, you know, which are an okay day one proxy hedge for the style or the overall flavor of the risk. Right. You know, but over time, as these products age and different indices go up, well, other ones go down and all of the risk, you know, moves moves all over the place. But then the, all of the, you know, the really fun stuff, and you, you alluded to this, <laughs> is really in you know, the, at this point, these are very large markets, right? So we're talking about, you know, Korea alone is well over $100 billion uh, a year of issuance of these type of products. Japan is large. You know, some, some European locations are decent sized. And these, these, the risk from these products are actually sort of the largest sources of buying and selling of longer term options on global indices in the world, right? So bigger than like pension funds doing, you know, hedging, for example, or hmm. bigger than hedge funds buying or selling long term indices. And so what that means is the when you get so that the the banks that are out in the market having to manage this risk, you know, typically are all in a similar type of position, right? Because more or less the products that they're selling to retail have the same characteristics. Right. And when something funny happens, they are you know a huge part of the volume of that market and all trying to do the same thing. So Tracy alluded to, for example, in twenty fifteen, you know, what you had was this the scenario in which Chinese markets rallied very, very fast in the summer of 2015. And there was a lot of issuance of these types of products as retail was very involved in speculation in equity markets. And then the market suddenly fell uh, over a few months, almost 50% in, in China, right, the equity markets. And what that meant was many of these products, right, so banks had been gone out and sold downside put options and sometimes variant swaps against these portfolios of, of auto calls. But then as the market falls very fast, all of a sudden the, the auto calls start, you know, get close to knocking out. Some of them knock out. 
uh, and the banks all have to go and buy back those hedges which they've sold, right? Because they run into this this barrier problem where they have this kind of complex security that they had an okay hedge for day one, um, but once you have a big market crash, all of a sudden it's not a good hedge anymore, and you had a huge short squeeze in options and volatility that blew up a bunch of banks and a, a bunch of hedge funds. Some hedge funds made a bunch of money, and some hedge funds lost a bunch of money, and it was causing a very major issues in those markets. So they kind of all end up, I guess, short vol uh, when these things get knocked in, which means they have to buy more puts and sell more futures and sort of do this imperfect hedge at exactly the wrong time. And they have to compete with everyone else uh, to do the imperfect hedge at exactly the wrong time. Exactly. But no, that's exactly right. So the key thing to think about is the banks, when they do these, uh, when they issue these types of securities, they're effectively buying, you know, downside puts of a complicated form from investors, and they're hedging them by by selling, you know, relatively simple vanilla puts, typically, because those are the things that you can hedge with. Right? And the mismatch between the two really arises when markets are selling off very quickly, right? When the the that risk that with that when that volatility, when that downside protection that the banks have effectively bought from retail investors starts to go away because you start to get down close to those knockout barriers, you know, the probability of those notes starting to knock out rises very fast and all of a sudden banks are left, you know, short a bunch of options that they've sold to hedge, but their but their long option position, their protection is is starting to go away. And it's all happening to all the banks all at the same time. So just regarding the hedge, one thing I've always wondered is, you know, you, you said that the banks, the issuers make most of their money through commissions and fees on, on these products. And I get that they want their exposure to be relatively neutral um, for what they're selling. But is there any um, is there any motive by the banks to also generate profit through the hedge itself? Like, is there a way to creatively hedge in such a way that you can juice your returns a little bit or add a little bit of extra revenue? There is. It, it usually, uh, there are many such ways to do so. Usually they involve taking um, more basis risk than you should and by sort of taking some hidden risks, right? So that's, of course, one of the common themes of derivatives markets in general is usually the easiest way to juice your returns and make your boss happy is to take some hidden risk. Um, that will occasionally flare up and, and blow you up, right? So 2015 was a great example of that in, in China. Um, several of the banks, much of their hedge portfolios against structured products linked to Chinese equity markets uh, were in the form of variance swaps uh, rather than options. Think of variances is the square of volatility, right? So the main difference between a variance swap and a portfolio of options is just that when things get really bad, you're you know you lose money with a squared term sort of on the uh, in the size of the amount of money that you lose, <laughs> hmm. which is generally very bad. But in normal markets, you get paid if you're short them, you get paid a little bit of extra money for that, right? And so as a result, so variance swaps have the opposite profile of of these port underlying portfolios of auto calls in the sense that the auto calls as the market goes down and down and down actually eventually the uh the volatility protection from those auto calls from the bank's perspective goes away right because you start to knock out or you get very close to knocking out whereas variance swaps are the opposite where the worse things get the more exposure a variance swap has so there were were several banks that had very heavy exposure to variance swaps uh, on the short side as their hedge in order to juice their returns. As you said, that made their, their profits look pretty good for, for several years, um, but then caused massive and outsized losses in Q3 of 2015 when, when the equity markets fell. So, um, you know, quick answer, yes, absolutely, there's ways to, to, to generate additional revenue in those portfolios by, by taking some extra mismatch risk by effectively being short extra tail risk generally generally comes around to bite you. Okay, uh, I need to back up for a second and understand the risk that the bank is exposed to when the retail holder of the note is knocked in. So again, we have these uh, notes that protect the investor from any downside risk until, say, one index or maybe one of multiple index drops 30%. So then the, let's say that happens. And then the, uh, the the retail investor no longer has any protection. They're down 30% on their initial capital. Why is that bad for the bank? Why does that create a mismatch then that requires some sort of aggressive, uh, you know, as you put it, a, a short squeeze in the options? 
Sure, absolutely. So so let's go with our simple example. So we've got a retail investor that yeah. bought a hundred dollars of this of this auto call. Yes. That's effectively going to uh, give them a yield unless the the underlying index is down thirty percent. Upon which the no will just go away and they'll lose thirty percent. Right. Right. So that in of itself, from the bank's perspective, of course, if the if the note if the market is down thirty percent and and we trigger the knockout, what that's just going to mean is the bank is not going is going to have to only pay you seventy cents back right. instead of uh, you know a hundred a hundred cents or a hundred dollars back. And so, just in theory. The bank would prefer a 30% decline to a 29% decline, right? Or does that... Yes, except the bank has hedged this product. Right, So the bank doesn't just sell all these products, right? Because otherwise, then the bank just has massive directional exposure to to everything, right? So the bank has hedged this note, and the bank has sold a bunch of, you know, 25% out of the money three-year put options on on the underlying index, right? And so as the the market starts to go down and down and down, Actually, the typically the the dynamics of this from a hedging perspective, the bank will get a little bit longer volatility at first, and that just has to do with the fact that of the structuring of this knock and put option. So often the bank will actually have to sell a little bit more of those put options, okay. you know, for the first say ten percent of the market decline. But once we get you know to your point, once then the market goes down and down and down and is nearing this knockout point, right? The bank is still short all of those put options that it sold, right? Right, and the only thing that's going to happen, and once that note knocks out, then the bank uh, pays the investor seven, you know, the seventy dollars, having you know taken in a hundred dollars yep. at first. That's fine, but they still have all of these. Now they're just outright short a whole bunch of put options, right? right? And they've got to go buy those back uh, because uh, they have no hedge for them. And of course, all of this in option land is is sort of forward looking and probabilistic, right? So as the market goes down and it starts to look like you're getting close to knockout, then banks are getting worried and they're they're starting to effectively get short volatility in the in the portfolio because the notes are losing some volatility exposure as it looks like they might knock out with with higher and higher probability. And that's this kind of dynamic where all of a sudden the banks just, you know, start scrambling to cover those hedges. So this is one avenue, essentially, where markets can really impact the financial health of banks. Um, and banks can also impact uh, the markets as well. And I think there was actually a moment in time where if, if you looked at um, the Hang Seng Index, it was kind of tracking uh, against the um, the index of um, Korean brokerages and, and Korean banks. And you could sort of see that link very, very clearly. Uh, so my question is, in a, a long and convoluted way, why aren't regulators more focused on this? Because it seems like a pretty obvious and potentially troublesome source of a, of a feedback loop, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Korean regulators have paid attention to this over the years. Um, they typically have come in usually after a blow up. Um, Korean banks did lose quite a lot of money in 20 banks and brokerages in 2015 after the, the China debacle. Um, and, and regulators will come in. So they restricted, for example, they restricted the percentage of, uh, of new issuance of structured products that could be linked to Chinese indices after that meltdown in 2015. Um, but typically, they've taken a relatively laissez-faire approach to this space. They've looked at, you know, basic investor protection, you know, whether the disclosures are adequate and so forth. Um, but, you know, globally, there just hasn't been that much focus on it. I think, you know, regulators have a lot of different things to look at, uh, and they have to make decisions about what their, what they, where they think the biggest risks are and what they think, you know, where they think systemic risk is. You know, and historically, uh, it hasn't been a space that they that they focused on a tremendous amount. Again, outside of Korea, to some extent, because this is so these these products are so large relative to the Korean market, and when Korean banks get involved, you know, they can be um, huge drivers of of Korean banks, uh, you know, solvency. So, something that you mentioned, you said in 2015, some hedge funds lost a lot of money. Some hedge funds uh, made a lot of money. How does an outside player? who's attempting to uh, take advantage of the potential for some sort of extreme moves in the options market as certain barriers get hit, or they think this is a risk out there and they want to be in position to exploit it, how do they get a handle 
on where the various knock-in levels are, given that there's a range of different notes uh, with different underlying indices, all sold at different times and different days, and I'm sure every day they reprice and reset and all that. How does one start to get a handle on where these sort of key levels of risks lie and therefore when one might expect to see a short squeeze in a particular uh, flavor of options? Yeah, absolutely. So then that's that's exactly the right question, I think. So uh these days much of the of the issuance of these products is uh publicly observable and what you see is um is banks and research desks at banks, you know, building up data sets and models of all of these types of exposures. So typically, um if, you know, you're involved in the space, you know, you you're you have coverage from the various French banks that are very heavily involved, and they will typically have a set of models that that try to estimate, all right, here's all the different indices that all these notes are linked to. Here's what banks' risk profiles look like. Uh, and you'll and what the typically very interesting questions is, you know how much volatility exposure do these portfolios of auto calls the banks hold have? Uh, as a function of where uh, of the level of the indices, right? So, uh, so I mentioned typically the, those risks grow to some extent as equity markets start to go down. Right. But then the key question is where do they stop growing, and then where do they suddenly fall off a cliff as you really start to get into and go through that that knockout zone? And so, for example, uh, you know these days in the S and P, you know right now there might be out of out of Korea and Japan. There's probably uh, you know, a hundred million dollars of exposure to one point, uh, one point change in volatility. So think of like the VIX is you know fifteen. That's in volatility points. Uh, so a hundred million Vega means if that goes up by one point, the the profits or losses associated with that is a hundred million dollars. So that that number goes up about twenty percent as the mark as the S and P goes down to mm-hmm. about twenty five hundred. But then it starts to really fall mm. off a cliff very fast, and by about you know, 2000 or 1800, uh, it's going away quite quickly. And so that's, but then those types of, of estimates are modeled and something that you can keep track of pretty well. And, you know, the, the interesting question, you know, p- partly to hedge funds, but I think largely to, to larger institutional investors and asset owners, you know, usually when you're out there looking for hedges or looking for long-term um, portfolio protection. The key question is always, you know, what is supply and demand? Is, are you trying to buy expensive, you know, risk protection that somebody else, that everybody else is trying to buy too, right. or is there really a supply of it in the marketplace? Is there a big source of selling of the of the risk that you're trying to get a hold of? Uh, and this is a good example of you know retail investors in structured products being a large source of selling of, of long-term tail risk in, in major equity indices. And so folks will focus very heavily on. You know, the, as an asset owner, as a pension fund, you know what's what's my risk profile for my organization as a function of of equity markets, you know, and of, of my equity exposure. You know, where do I start to get as an organization into you know major distress costs? How does that map into um, what kinds of protection I might get from um, f- from these type of from from options in this type of range? Given that uh, you know that banks. Where, you know where the equity market will be in my in my bad scenarios, and whether there's going to be a you know big squeeze in the prices of those options. It's the kind of thing people think about. So Ben, you mentioned the S and P 500 uh, just then in your example, and and this is where we start to get into some of the newer developments in structured product land. Uh, and something new that is happening is that we're seeing more of these that are actually pegged to. U.S. indices as opposed to uh, sometimes obscure Asian equity markets. Why is that happening and what does it actually mean for uh, the wider market? That's right. So this has been a very, very interesting trend the last few years. Uh, So first of all, to to your point, there has been more and more of this underlying issuance directly linked to the S&P. Part of the reason for that is uh, that implied the you know option prices and implied volatilities on some of those international indices have come down and down and down over the last few years, partly driven by by, by the selling of of these types of products and and also partly driven by the fact that actually realized volatility globally has been falling uh, and you've had a lot actually most of the volatility episodes in equity markets over the last couple of years have been u s centric and s and p centric 
So think of like the February, you know, vol blow up and December 2018, right? These were really U.S. centric events. And so unusually from a historical perspective, actually S&P volatility and option prices have been relatively higher and relatively firmer compared to international, which of course attracts, you know, mixing S&P in uh, for, for, to sell options to generate those higher coupons that the retail investor wants. Now, the other really important thing that's been happening here, again, you, you know, think of, of banks as the manufacturers of this of this industry of this risk, right? Where they're you know generating this fixed fee revenue, and then the the price that they're effectively paying for it is the risk that they're taking to manage these portfolios. The uh, you know as we saw in in 2015 in particular, you know, there's a lot of it's quite difficult. To manage this risk in general, but especially in you know Chinese equity markets, in Japanese equity markets, you know these are smaller option indices that don't have as big of volumes, where, where these markets, the, the structured products, really really dominate the risk in these markets, and where the liquidity issues are very exacerbated. So one thing banks really started to look at in earnest over this period was, you know, how can we get more of this risk into an easier to manage format where we're not having to, you know, frantically sell more options as markets go down for a little while and then frantically buy a whole bunch of them back in, you know, China where it's really hard to do this. So what they started to do was create relatively complicated investment products for hedge funds called, for example, corridor variant spread, which had the end goal and an effective purpose of basically moving a bunch of this risk that they had to manufacture out of those smaller indices globally and into the S&P 500, which is the world's biggest, most liquid option market. And they do that in various you know, complicated ways that we don't need to get into. But the, the end effect is that even though they've issued a lot of notes that are directly linked to the euro stocks, to the, the Nikkei, to the HSCEI, when global equity markets go down, banks find most of the changes in their risk profile, which they need to go out and manage and hedge you know, at least to first order, they find those changes happening in the S and P, and they, uh, and it might be that initially, again, for that first, as the markets start to drift down, they're having to sell some downside S and P options, but then they're going out and and having to buy the the, the S and P options then if the uh, if the market crashes. So that's very new over the last few years. So just to be clear, is it that the note? in the basket of the indices that it's exposed to is it that it has the S&P 500 in it or is it simply a mix of that plus also the idea that even if the note is exposed to the Hang Seng or something like that that the bank might find it still most expedient to hedge via S&P options on the premise that on some level there's a level of correlation and even if it's not the perfect hedge for them that that might be the place to uh, the the cheapest, most liquid place to uh, hedge their risk. So there has been some increasing direct link of these notes to the S and P, but it's still a minority. It's still going to be you know twenty percent or something okay. like that. The uh, and they they're not typically just warehousing tons of basis risk and only hedging an S and P. Um, but what they're doing again is is so I'll you know explain a, a little bit what a what a corridor variant spread is. So let's say the bank has this auto call that it's you know sold to Bob. And so the bank has that risk profile that we've been talking about. And, right. you know, its proxy hedge for that was going out and selling some downside puts on the euro stocks. But the bank's going to go and do another trade with a hedge fund. And that trade is going to be something like, hey, here's this volatility exposure, which is going to be a spread between the euro stocks and the S&P. Oh. And that's, that exposure is going to be conditional on the strike level, on the level of the index in a way that kind of roughly matches what they think the profile, you know, of those auto calls is. Right. And what that does is now the hedge fund is going to have that the hedge fund is going to hold that weird difficult to manage uh, you know, risk in the euro stocks. And the bank is going to have the same the similar type of risk, but they're going to have it in the S&P on a net basis once you're combining that trade they just did with the hedge fund and the uh, and the auto call that they that they've sold to to retail. And you know you're adding layers and layers of complexity because now you've got you know a complicated product you've sold to retail that you've kind of tried to hedge by selling doing another complicated trade with a hedge fund, and so there's you know all sorts of more just weird bad path scenarios where you know things go funny. But the first order the first order result is that the banks 
that all those changes in volatility risk that happen at banks as a result of global markets moving down, they all happen to first order in the S&P now. A little bit in other indices too, but much more now in the S&P. And so that's really, really important. This is something we've never really seen before where, uh, you know, it used to be markets that, you know, typical U.S. centric investors and pension funds and real money guys didn't notice as much, you know, what's happening in, you know, in the HSCEI option markets. But now those dynamics are all being translated into the S&P. And for example, you know, what we saw in December of last year, you remember, right, the markets peak to trough were down 20% or so by, by Christmas Eve. Yeah. And, Everybody sitting on structured products desks was sitting there staring at their risk profile and thinking, if the market goes down another 5%, like we're just completely screwed because you, that was where you were starting to get into much of this nonlinearity where uh, all of a sudden all the risk, expo- their long volatility exposure, their protection coming from those auto calls was starting to disappear very fast. And uh, instead, we got that 6% rally the, the, the next day and shot off from there. But we were actually very close to a very, very major loss event, you know, across, uh, potentially across the street, and that could have cascaded into all sorts of, of crowded hedge fund positioning as well. And that's just something that's not on, I think, asset owners' radar screens at all. <laughs> the fact that this you've had this kind of infection of typically very, you know, historically much more normally behaving markets that used to be the places where pension funds went to hedge or, you know, what have you, that are now being very dominated by these weird, complicated structured product dynamics. Is the implication that we might not be as lucky next time? There, there will certainly be a time. I mean, I know this is this, these days it's a controversial topic, but um, there's certainly will be a day when equity markets are down more than twenty percent peak to trough. <laughs> a day? Wait, you say there will be? Wait, did you say there will be a day? No, a t- a t- a, sorry, a time. Oh, I don't mean time. like a single oh, day. Yeah, twenty oh. percent. Although you're saying that this is going to be like a nineteen eighty seven or something like that. That's that's more of a flash crash thing. Right. That's okay. A thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. But okay. look, we at some point the you know there will be a, a recession in the U.S. There will right, be a right. global recession, and at some point you know equity mar- multiples will will contract. And this is and this market is is very much set up to be a time bomb in exactly that in exactly that scenario. Sort of global equity markets down you know twenty five or thirty percent or more. So just to sort of wrap it all. Up, what people need to understand, and I just sort of just to sort of summarize it, is that essentially these notes they're sold all, all over the world, but they're very heavily heavy in Korea and also in Japan. And the basic idea is the the size of this market in these countries and the way that the issuers of these products have sort of migrated more and more of their hedging to the S and P five hundred creates a situation in which the activity of retail players in these countries can create some potentially extreme moves in S&P 500 options and presumably the main index itself as declines beget declines and banks have to do all kinds of things to keep their uh, exposures level. Yep, that's exactly correct. Ben, thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, That's Ben Eifert from QVR Advisors. Thank you for walking us through uh, what is at times a complicated topic. You got it, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Ben. That was great. Really appreciate it. So, Joe, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, I I love talking and writing about structured products. It's half past midnight here in Hong Kong, and I weirdly uh, don't feel tired at all because I'm so excited about talking about tarps and uh, auto callables and all that. But one thing that definitely crops up in that conversation is just this notion that there's so much sort of self-reflexivity built into financial markets nowadays. And you see it, you know, not just with these equity linked products, but you also see it with credit markets where um, there's an argument over whether or not the derivatives indices uh, can actually affect the cash bond prices. You certainly see it in the volatility market with the uh, volpocalypse blow up of 2018 when these two tiny exchange traded products uh, caused this big whiplash in the overall volatility market. It just feels like this is something that we're seeing time and time again. Absolutely. And obviously, uh, we should talk more about it. But I agree. It does feel like there is this, as you say, reflexivity in which 
these sort of like ongoing, uh, you know, ongoing attempts to hedge and to be balanced creates these extreme scenarios. Um, we should do another one, but before we forget it, we should do another episode because they're bringing back one of those short VIX ETFs that blew up and we oh, did yeah. a big thing on. So I saw that. We should definitely uh, do another one on this. But I thought like Ben's explanation, it is extremely complicated and thinking about the sort of um, the way the volatility or risk profile for the bank changes as the market goes from, say, from flat to down 15% to 25%, and then the volatility starts to collapse again as it gets to 30%, and then the knock-in happens. Really hard to uh, sort of wrap one's head around, but I thought Ben did a great job of, A, explaining that, but also why this is so hard for even the experts to price and why you see desks occasionally lose a bunch of money. Right. And I guess the um, the corollary to that, you could say, is that if, if it's that hard for the issuers to price the risk yeah. of selling these products, then should they really be going to retail investors in the first right. place? And I don't know if you've ever looked at the advertising uh, for some of the equity-linked securities, but like it gets very creative and colorful. So I remember there was one uh, that was sold in Korea that had like Sai from Gangnam Style on it and made all these Gangnam um, neighborhood references. So I don't know, should retail investors really be diving into these things or, or do the majority of them actually understand how they work? I mean, I was going to I we didn't get to it, but that was something that's been on my mind thinking about this is how could a retail investor unless they're extremely sophisticated, have any idea whether they're getting a good value or not, given how complicated the various payoff matrices are, especially when they include multiple index. How would you ever know whether you're getting a good value? And furthermore, I feel like if you were in a position to know, okay, this is actually a good product for me, you're probably sophisticated enough to trade options yourself and just create some sort of a bespoke Risk, risk set up on your own, but that's kind of for a, uh, a different discussion, maybe. Yeah, or work on a Delta One desk at a large yeah. French bank or something. Right. All right. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow for sure our guest, Ben Eifert. He's on Twitter. He's really awesome. His handle is... Ben with two N's, P. Eifert. So definitely check out his stuff. One of the uh, great follows. And you should definitely follow our producer on Twitter. She's back in studio with us, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. And follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy. She's at Francesca Today. And follow all of Bloomberg's podcasts on Twitter at the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.